But we're back in Romans uh, 12. So take your copies of God's Word and and let's uh, take a look again. Now, l- let me just read you the text that is under examination for the evening. Um, <laughs> I'm looking for some sympathy here. I'll, I'll explain in a minute. But um, l- look at verse 12, Romans 12, 12. Now, now, guys, let me remind you, this is Paul's theology of the church. He's describing what the church, how she functions, what she looks like, what would be characteristic of her. And he says that these are three things that would characterize the church or should characterize the church. She is, she does rejoice in hope. She is patient in tribulation. And she is constant in prayer. Now, I'll read the text. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Those are three things that uh, should earmark the church. Uh, this, this, this joyful hope, this patience in trial, and this constancy in prayer. Those are, those are three characteristics of the church as Paul sees her. Now, guys, here's where I want your sympathy. You know, guys, um, I know that some of you, you know, make jokes at my expense uh, talking about how long we've been in the book of Romans and, uh, you know, they yell, they'll talk bad about me in the shadows and, Say things about will the will the will the goon ever ever complete the book? I mean, I mean, what what why why is he so slow? All right, try for the moment just to put yourself in my spot, and you're facing a text that says <coughs> rejoice in hope. Um. Uh, secondly, it says to be patient in tribulation, and to be constant in prayer. Now, guys, at least in that text, at least there are two. Huge issues. One has to do with tribulation. The other has to do with prayer. Now, that other one's not so bad either. Um, but those two things are enormous. You know, actually, guys, whenever I do something from the pulpit that it has, um, uh, has a, at least a part of the theme, suffering or affliction or trial or pain or however you, whatever term you want to use, those are the ones that people listen to the most, the most closely. Because it's such an issue. Guys, I have, I have been preaching here for almost 20 years now. I have not run out of things to say. There's tons of stuff that you could say about that one subject. Can you not see that? I mean, can you not see that we could talk about affliction in here for, you know, a long time, you know? And then, prayer. Prayer. You know, I could say, <clears throat> okay, y'all, pray. Let's move to verse 13. I mean, I could do that. Uh, and that would be covering the verse. But, you know, I, 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 I gave it some thought, and, and I, I searched my memory bank. I don't remember ever doing anything that is peculiarly designed to discuss the, the topic of prayer. I may have alluded to it, et cetera, but nothing devoted to the subject. So, do I get a little sympathy here? Um, you know, I can't race through this text. I can't. I can't just give a nod to affliction to give a nod to prayer and just move on to the next verse. I can't do it. So here's what I'm offering. <laughs> We're going to cover the first two of these tonight. There are three components in the text. As you can well see, it's not hard to figure that out. Three component parts. And the first two, actually they're all three related, but the first two are particularly related when he talks about hope and tribulation. Guys, um, that's the same sequence that he gives you in in Romans chapter 5 when he says, um, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God more than that we rejoice in our sufferings. 
He puts those things back to back here, and he puts those things back to back in Romans chapter 5. And then in a, <coughs> I'm sorry, in a famous text in, um, oh gosh, where is it? Uh, Psalm 42, you know, uh, why aren't you cast down on my soul? And what does he say next? Hope in God. The psalmist connects those two things. Why is my soul cast down? Why am I suffering like this? And then he says, hope. The psalmist attaches those two things. Paul attaches them in Romans 5, and he attaches them here. So we're going we're gonna to take a look at those two things tonight, and then we're going to come back next week and, and isolate the issue of prayer and discuss it. For one or maybe two weeks, we're going to take a look at the issue of prayer. So I don't seem to be getting any sympathy here, so um, um, I'm sorry. Okay, guys, let's let's take a look at these things, these three component parts that, that Paul say, says should be characteristic of the church. First of all, that we should be joyful in hope. Now, guys, to ever be without hope um, means that we're acting like pagans. Paul says in um, 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. That is, if you grieve like people who have no hope, you're acting like a pagan because there's never a time that a Christian should be without hope. This expectation of future good, there should never be a time that a Christian should be without some of that. Which means at least one, one piece of the application I think it should mean, guys, is that suicide for the Christian is out of the question. It's out of the question for lots of reasons, but it's out of the question. Because we should never, when, when we are hopeless, we're acting like pagans. Those are the people who don't have hope. We always have hope. Guys, hope is not simply this blessed provision of God for our everlasting comfort. It's a duty. It's a, it's a, it's a command to, to be without hope. Is sin. We are supposed to be people who are characterized as people having hope. Now, I will say this. Some personalities tend to be more hopeful than others. The sanguine personality of which mine is a part. Um, you know, we're kind of the optimistic kind of dudes. And, and if your personality is somewhat melancholy, it, you know, you will struggle more here than, than, than others. But guys, the ground of our hope is not a personality type. The ground of our hope is something outside of us. Um, and by the way, that hope is not limited to something future either. Um, David in Psalm 119 says, Remember thy word to your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. That is, I want to stand on those things that you promised me in your word, which is my grounds for hope. And, I, and I'll say one more quick thing. First um, Corinthians 13 describes love, and it says, love hopes all things. Guys, for us to be without hope um, is to make us more like pagans than the sons and the daughters of the living God. Guys, I, I, Paul is not pleading, nor am I, for us to put on a smiley face, to put on the happy face, you know. Guys, that's pure flesh. 
And so is, and you know, you need to be an optimist, or or you need to be an idealist, or uh, that's humanism, guys. It's it's hope found in in something man generated. That's not what what. You know, guys, it took this country two, it took the world two world wars to figure out that hoping in man wouldn't work. I'm not sure they've forgotten the lessons of World War II, but, but guys, um, our hope is rooted in the great redemption that's described in, described in verses 1 and 2 of, of chapter 12. Um, it's rooted in doctrine. That ugly word in the evangelicalism. It's rooted in, in the truths contained. You know, um, I had a, just a, you know, this is, this is kind of an aside, but you who are parents out there and who are um, grieving over your children in the direction of their souls, you know what will comfort you? Doctrine. Doctrine. Our doctrine of salvation. That's what will comfort us, ladies and gentlemen. Because we understand that the, that the redemptive act is an act where God exchanges a heart of stone for a heart of flesh. So our hope is in what He does, not where the choices and are the directions that our children are going. Guys, I, that's just one illustration. I'm saying that our hope is founded in something that is outlined for us in the scriptures, which we otherwise call biblical doctrine. To be ignorant of your Bibles and the promises contained therein only hurts us. It only hurts you. Because those provisions give rise to a joyful hope. Now, I'm going to stop there because I want to get to this other thing. Because very honestly, uh, in terms of, oh, I don't know. My desire to please you, I guess. This is the thing that I can never say enough about. Patient in affliction. Guys, um, I, I, very honestly, I think you'd be fine with my going to the pulpit with this, this subject a whole lot more than I do. Because somebody in this room is in a struggle. Maybe all of you. you know, Maybe all of us. You know, put it like this. Is anybody in this room, is anybody here 100% happy? <laughs> okay. So now, now that we got that settled, let's talk about this subject of, of affliction. First of all, guys, i got three points that I want to make about it. It's going to take the rest of our time together. 25 minutes. Hang in there. There's three points. Number one, the fact of. Guys, um... Oh, I don't need to do this. Let, let me tell you, there's a Greek word. It's thlipsis. I could write it up there and impress you and that I still know the Greek language. But uh, the, the Greek word is thlipsis, and it's variously translated. For instance, in, in um, uh, Revelation 8, it talks about the great tribulation. Well, that word is thlipsis. But it's a word that is translated suffering. It's translated um, persecution. It's translated affliction. So I don't know what your translations have in terms of that word right there. My translation has the word tribulation. But whatever words you're most comfortable with, the Bible tells you that that is a fact of life. Guys, um, 
the Bible always presents it as a fact. And those who teach you otherwise have lied to you. Gang, the, the Bible advises us how we are to handle it, not how we are to eliminate it. The Bible starts by trying to help us face it and to face it with a, with a smidgen of victory in our, in our, in our experiences. But it in no, no means ever tries to tell you, here's how you can escape it. It never gets anywhere close to that. So, guys, it's a fact, and you and I should never be surprised when it's our turn. Because, for some of you tonight, it is your turn. And it'll be mine next week. Or hers, or his. But Paul, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Brother, sister, don't be surprised by this as if something odd and unusual and out of the, the norm was happening to you. It isn't. You know, um... Jesus makes a statement in, that, I mean, I, I think is fairly familiar to It's in John 16. Um, and he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world. You know the next words, don't you? He says, you will have tribulation. By the way, same word, flipsis. Same, same word right there. Gang, I, I, that might, in the, uh, I might be insulting your intelligence. But I'm telling you, our responses is something. How did this, where did this come from? Dang. This ought not surprise us. It is something that the Bible treats as a fact. Um, By the way, if you want to be surprised, be surprised if you don't get any. Because guys, um, what is it? Paul says in 2 Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if you're not getting it, oh, in, in, in Hebrews 12, I think it's verse 6, where, where the, the author of Hebrews says, um, God chastens all those he loves. So, if, I mean, if you're not getting any of this, so, you know, then uh, that's what ought to surprise you and scare you. But not that, that it's your turn. I would say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that we Christians, we have more difficulty than the non-Christian world. My life is a whole lot, and so is yours, a whole lot more complex than the non-Christian world because there are things for us that we simply cannot adopt. We cannot accept. And and as a result, uh, things go, um, you know, go south on us when they don't go south. I mean, I've told you that story before about you know, my interview with CNS Bank when I graduated from college and they flew me down from Knoxville to Atlanta and, and I, they gave me all these this battery of tests, you know, and interviews after interviews after interviews. And at the end of the day, I, I got in uh, with, a, with the uh, bank psychologist and, you know, he began to, uh, he, he said, well, what is it, son, that you want? I said, well, I want to work in the trust department. You want to work in the trust department. Well, you don't look like you can work in the trust department to me. I mean, you don't look like that, that very sharp of a guy to me. And I said, well, <laughs> no, no, I don't think you can do it. You, I mean, your grades aren't that good. You know, I, I don't think you can do it. And about that time, I figured out what this guy was doing. 
He was going to see if I was going to, you know, have a little backbone. So I kind of rocked back in my chair. And I said, hmm, so you don't think I can do this, do you? Well, let me tell you something. Within years, and I said, this is almost a quote. Within years, a few years, you will be working for me. (laughs) Guess what? Within 15 minutes, I had a job offer. Now, you know what? I can't get away with that godlessness anymore because I belong to Jesus Christ. I mean, there are just things that are that are off limits to us. Our lives are more complicated than, than theirs. L- l- let, me, let me read you this, guys. This is a, I just love this. This is a, a, a British author. His name is Jonathan Aitken. And I'm quoting, he says, Trusting in God does not mean that he will ensure that none of the things you are afraid of will ever happen to you. On the contrary, it means that whatever you fear is quite likely to happen, but that with, but that with God's help, it will end. Boy, I really blew that sentence. On the contrary, it means that whatever you fear is quite likely to happen, but that with God's help, it will, in the end, turn out to be nothing to be afraid of. That's what, that's, that's what this book says, guys. And I, and, and I add this. This, this cheeriness, um, this put on a happy face and put on a nice toothy grin, in my opinion, subverts evangelism for this reason. Guys, the world knows that it's that, that life is hard, and for us to go out there and grin with this toothy thing and act like nothing's wrong, they know better than that. And what they long for is something that's real, because they know life is tough too, just like ours is. Now, so that's the that's point one. That is the fact of. Now, the the text says that I'm supposed to be patient. I'm supposed to be patient in that. Now, guys, um, first of all, let me point out that the that the implication of that word is that this thing's going to last a while. It ain't going to be over tomorrow. There's not a quick formula that you can apply that you'll be Up and at them tomorrow morning. You're supposed to be patient under trial. And very honestly, it takes us a whole lot longer to heal than any of us believe. I had a friend who's, um, well, he's still a friend, but he's he's got so many physical problems. He's He had a trampoline accident when he was like 17 years old, and he walked with a limp, and his, his whole spine is deteriorated, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, he just had, he got hepatitis C, and, He's just a wreck. The poor, he can barely lift his hands. He can't even drink a cup of coffee anymore. And he's, he lives in a house with a crane that takes him around. It's just, and I adore him. I just, uh, I'd love to get him one day here to, to talk to you about suffering because nobody has handled it like Chuck has. Nobody. But anyway, in the midst of all his physical ailments, his wife goes out and has an affair. They catch her in a fire. No, no. They catch her in a motel in Mobile, Alabama, with a manager of a Firestone store, and he has to deal with all of that. 
And um, he'll tell you this today. And I tried to help. I mean, I tried to tell him. He didn't listen to me. But he, um, you know, he was out of the pulpit for a week or so, maybe 10 days. And then he went right back to the pulpit. And I said, Chuck, you know, when a dog gets wounded, he goes out into the woods and he licks his wounds and he heals up before he gets back to work, before he gets back. You need some time off. He didn't take that. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, you need some time off. It takes you a whole lot longer to heal than you, than you may know. And the call is for patience while we heal. I can tell you this, guys. There's been two real eruptions in my life. I mean, I've, I've bored you to absolute tears uh, over references to the Ocala um, debacle. But I'm telling you, 14 months later, I started thinking, you know, I'm going to make it. 14 months. I mean, to me, that was a long time. Maybe that's a short time for you, but for me, it was a long time. Guys, um, but, again, um, the Greek word is hupomone. That's important, guys. I know you don't think it's important, but it's important. The word that's translated patience here is hupomone. Now, put your finger there and see if you can find James real fast. James 1. And I'm going to ask you to find another one. So put your finger there. Put your finger in Romans. And I tell you what, why don't you put your other finger, another finger in Mark 13. Okay, we're going to make up some sense out of this in just a second. I think. I hope. Okay, are you ready? Uh, It says, patience and affliction. Now, look with me at James chapter 1 verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds... For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You see that word steadfastness? Guess what word that is? That's hupomone. Same word that you found in in, um, Romans 12. Now, keep your finger there and go over to Mark 13. You got that? Mark 13, 13. Jesus says, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Guess what the word endures is? Hupomone. It's in the verbal form. All the same cognate family. But Jesus says the thing that you need to be saved is endurance. Now go back to James chapter 1. What does it say that that trial produces? Endurance. You need hupomone to be saved. <clears throat> and what is it that produces hupomone? Oh, trial produces hupomone. And hupomone, ladies and gentlemen, is the thing that is necessary to get us to the end. Because those are the only people who will be saved. There's a very real sense, ladies and gentlemen, that the agony of your soul right now is the best friend you have. Trial is sent to increase our endurance. It's it's sent to increase our patience so that we will endure to the end. Trial teaches us things that that nothing else can teach us. Did you hear that, ladies and gentlemen? That is so profound. Trial teaches us things that nothing else can teach us. We all got a lot to learn, don't we? 
the goal, I think, the words that I love to use, is that God is, is ordering things to the place that you and I will become sweetly submissive. Sweetly submissive. But instead of that, we, we begin to grumble and complain. We doubt, well, goodness gracious, I mean, I didn't know I was getting into this, and I, didn't, I don't know whether Christianity is true. Ladies and gentlemen, if you will read your Bibles, it will tell you this long before it, it occurs. It's a fact. That was point one. It's a fact. I, um, I, I didn't know that my wife was coming. She's had some uh, sickness issues, and there's a word that I've got in my notes here that I better not use because she's here. <laughs> um, but I'm telling you that the 21st century church wants only the happy songs. You know, ladies and gentlemen, there are some denominations that only sing psalms. If you're, you, know, you, you know that, don't you? Did you know that half of the psalms, half of them, 75 of the 150, Half of them are laments, protests, and complaints about the incoherence of life. There was one female author, and I thought I could get away with this, but my wife is here. Uh, there was a one female author that, that described all of that as the psalmists who were, and the word starts with a B. I can't use the word because my wife is here. If my wife weren't here, I used the word. And I thought I could get away with it because a woman said it. You read the Psalms and you see them dealing with the incoherence of their lives. And the 21st century American evangelical church says, sing his happy songs. Ladies and gentlemen, go sing the Psalms. And you won't be singing happy songs. You'll be, sing, you'll be singing words that were ordained by God the Holy Spirit to put in the mouths of God's people that they sing them. We want the happy songs. It just shows you how sick the American Western Evangelical Church is. Evangelicals tend to want to get the happy ending. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry to tell you this, but may I be the first to inform you that sometimes there is no happy ending. Tonight when you get home, read Psalm 88. It ends in darkness. The psalmist says, darkness is my closest friend. It doesn't have a happy ending, at least in my lifetime. Guys, can I show you this too? This, I, I, I found this. Can you find Ezra real fast? Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. If you can find Job, then go back a couple of three books. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. So Ezra 4. Ezra 4. There it is. It's right after 2 Chronicles, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Ezra. Guys, do you know what this is? This is post-exilic. The Bible is not arranged chronologically. If you didn't know that, you need to know that. It doesn't go serially. It's not arranged chronologically. 
Ezra is a post-exilic book. That is, it is written after the Babylonian uh, exile, when the exiles have come back to Jerusalem to rebuild it. Do you understand that? Ezra is the guy that's late. He's a priest and he's leading the the rebuilding of the temple after it's been destroyed by the Babylonians in, uh, I don't know, 486 B.C., something like that. 422, I forget the numbers. But anyway. They come back to rebuild the temple. They, because they're rebuilding the temple, everybody in the area is really mad at them. They don't want that temple rebuilt. Nah, nah we're not going to get that thing. Let's get it stopped. And so they got enemies everywhere. Enemies to the north. Enemies to the west. Uh, the east. Enemies to the south. Enemies everywhere. And so they write this guy, they write the king, Artaxerxes, a letter. He's the, uh, the, he's the uh, Persian king. They write him a letter and say, you know what's happening down here? You need to get that thing stopped. You need to get that thing stopped because those are wicked old guys that are doing that. And you know what, ladies and gentlemen? Artaxerxes sends a letter back and says, stop it. It's in um, verse 24, chapter 4. Verse 23. Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahum and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Why did they win? Why does the bad guys win? <coughs> Why did they get away with that? Oh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it got it got started again. Everything got back on track. Happy ending. Do you know how long it was between 424 when it was stopped? And when it resumed, 17 years. And there you are as a believer and you're thinking, 17 years is a long time, ladies and gentlemen. Why do the bad guys win? There's a lot of people who died in 17 years. Oh, it it had a happy ending. For 17 years, the bad guys had the upper hand. One of my, I call him heroes, but Blasé Pascal, who's a French mathematician and a philosopher, um, in in his book called Pensis, if you ever, if you, if you like that stuff, boy, that's a good one. Pensis, um, and I think the word Pensis means thoughts, but he's talking about praying for relief from physical ailments, from sickness. And he says that he was very reluctant to pray for healing when he was sick. And this is what he says. Listen, I know not which is most profitable to me, health or sickness, wealth or poverty, nor anything else in the world. That discernment is beyond the power of men or angels and is hidden among the secrets of your providence, which I adore, but do not seek to fathom. Do you hear what he said? When I'm sick, I don't even pray for wellness because I don't know that wellness is good for me. The answer to that lies in your grand providence, which I adore, but I do not understand. That's enough. It's okay. It's in your providence. What happens when we get sick, ladies and gentlemen? Moaning and groaning, when is this going to end? When's it going to be over? Pascal said, I don't even know what to pray. So, I'm just going to endure patiently. Guys, real quick. 
That was point two. That is the fact. It says patience. And then why? That is, that is the, that is the burning question of the day every time I'm in something that, that hurts. Why? Why is trial distributed so randomly and what appears to be so, so unfairly? As somebody who loves your soul, you know, you may not believe that, but I, I didn't leave Procter & Gamble to make money. As someone who's a lover of your soul, let me say this, ladies and gentlemen, you can ask why all you want. But don't expect to get an answer. Ask away. Job asked 16 times. He asked why 16 times. And he never got an answer. Job gave the most irreverent speeches found anywhere in the Bible. And yet Job emerges from this situation as a hero because he endured patiently. Something far more than... But, but here, here's the point, guys. The question is not why. The right question is... How do I respond? How will I respond to this? And let me give you a, an answer that might help. How do you respond? Seek God and stop seeking happiness. I gotta tell you this story and then I'll, I'll quit. Um, the name Helmut Tillicky, or Tillicky, not gonna ring a bell with any of you, many of you. Um, Helmut Tillicky was a, um, he's in print several times, um, but he was a German pastor in Stuttgart, Germany. And um, he, um, before the war, in the 30s and the 40s, actually, I think in the late 20s and the 30s. But uh, he was removed from his university position because he didn't support Hitler. And he fought Nazism and ultimately was imprisoned, was sent to jail <clears throat> because of um, his positions. He was a German Lutheran pastor. After the war, he survived the war and he was let out and he wanted to go back to Stuttgart. He goes back to Stuttgart. He walks from Berlin to Stuttgart. Now, I don't, I don't know much German geography, so I don't know how far that is, but it's further from here than here to Kigerville. He walks to Stuttgart, and the first place he wants to go is his church. He returns to his church and discovers that it is a bombed-out rubble. So he stands there for a while and absorbs all that and he says, well, he, then he, go, he, he walks to his home there in Stuttgart. It too was a bombed out rubble. When, when the survivors of his congregation realized that he was alive, they, um, they pressed upon him to resume church services, which they did standing in the rubble of what once was their sanctuary. 
And he said, as I walked through the streets of Stuttgart, I was overcome with starving children who were licking pictures of food that they found in recipe books. And so he felt this enormous weight of responsibility to try to say something to his congregation that had a bit of hope in it. Something that would help them. Try to preach something while you're standing with rubble and kids licking pictures of food and <clears throat> in your house you have no place to go back to at night. And that's my congregation that I'm, I'm pastoring. He said that the only constant, the only pole, the only thing that, that, that was a fixed point for them or for him was what he considered to be God's faithfulness and goodness to him. And then what I want to read you is something that he said in one of his sermons. Ladies and gentlemen, if this guy's a Christian, I don't know who I am. I must be a Buddhist because I'm just about as far from this as I as Buddhism is from Christianity. He stands in his pulpit and this is what he said, this is a portion of what he said in one of his sermons. One day, perhaps, when we look back from God's throne on the last day, we shall say with amazement and surprise, if I had ever dreamed when I stood at the graves of my loved ones and everything seemed to be ended, if I had ever dreamed when I saw the specter of atomic war creeping upon us, if I had ever dreamed when I faced the, meaninglessness fate, the meaningless fate of an endless imprisonment or a malignant disease, if I had ever dreamed that God was only carrying out His design and plan through all these woes, that in the midst of my cares and troubles and despair, His harvest was ripening and that everything was pressing on toward His last kingly day. If I had known this, I would have been more calm and confident. Yes. Then I would have been more cheerful and far more tranquil and far more composed. My brother and sister in Christ, we do know that. Then explain to me why we have no tranquility, no composure, and we lose that grasp on reality when times are difficult. I don't know the answer to that question. But I think we ought to investigate it individually. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in affliction. Paul says those two things characterize the people of God. Is that not marvelous? 
Our Father, I do pray that you will um, establish within us a deep abiding confidence in the promises that you've made us. That we can, with grand confidence, know that you are carrying out the design and the plan through all these woes. And that you are in the midst of these things bringing about a ripe harvest all for your glory and for our good. I guess, oh God, for some of these, we're going to have to wait 17 years. And some of us are going to die before we see the solution. But might you find among this small body of your people a determination to rejoice in hope and to be patient in affliction. Do that, O oh God. For Jesus' sake, in his name we pray. Amen.